crowd had inflicted many blows upon them, Paul and Silas, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he broke them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them, and the same hour of the night washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into his household, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So I'm Caleb. If I have not met you yet, I serve as one of the pastors here. I'm just going to go ahead and warn you, this is going to be a little on the longer side, um, which is still not an hour for me. It's, it's longer, but not that. Um, I don't know. Sometimes when there's really profound topics, we've got to talk a little longer, so I hope that's okay with you. I've um, I turned 30 this year. Yeah. Yeah, I'm one of the oldest people here at Life Church now. I don't know. I think when you hit another decade, you just naturally start like reflecting on your life, uh, looking back, uh, looking ahead. What what has my life been like? What do I want it to become? Kind of like a life audit, I guess. I've been practicing this thing called silence and solitude, which for a lot of you might be your personal hell, but it's been really good. Um, for me. Like a weirdo that I am, I just kind of sit on my back porch sometimes and just like stare at the trees. No music or anything, just just staring and listening, uh, trying to feel things and understand um, where I'm at. As I was kind of looking back over my life, I realized, and I, I've said this a lot um, here, so I won't go much into it, but um, just had a lot of stuff in my past. Um, with trauma and things, with friends. I'd stepped into ministry pretty early uh, into my life. I was about 20-ish or so. Um, I've only been following Jesus for about eight years now. Um, I got married five years ago, not recently, but five years ago. Um, And as I was looking through all of that, I'm like, I've had to be a lot of things for people. So like when I was suffering just some of that trauma, I had to put on something that would make me seem like lovable for people. When I jumped into ministry, which this is a great thing, but I just, 
immediately went into the mode of serving others. Again, a great thing. Put on the husband-like hat. Realized how selfish all of those things, you know? Like, just, like, started to really see that, man, I, I, I'm being a lot of things for people, but the Spirit just hit me. Kev, I don't think you know what it means to be yourself. And I've realized just how much of my life, and if you're honest, you would say this too, how much of my life has been run by fear. And fear is a good thing. I mean, if you walk outside and there's a grizzly bear and it's an impulse to have, you're probably afraid, right? That's a good thing. It's a reaction to, uh, to things that are evil or bad. I think that's been hardwired into us by the creator, but something has gone entirely wrong with us. We are dominated by fear. It, 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 the things that are running in our mind over and over and over and over, you know what that is. It's probably happening to you right now. The things that, that keep you up at night, the decisions that you make for your life, your career, all of these things are dominated by fear. We saw it in the pandemic, how differently people reacted to make sense of it, provide solutions, all of these things by a drive of fear. And there's a lot of language for this in scripture, but what I want to argue today, if we are going to make sense of what Paul is saying to the jailer, believe. What must I do to be saved? Believe. What are we being saved from? What are we putting belief in? What does that even mean? I think we hear these words a lot, but we don't actually sometimes like know what they mean. <laughs> and what we're doing is an act of that. What are we, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, actively being saved from and purged of? So to get to the heart of faith, to see it as solution, we have to get to the root of it. What is the opposite of faith? And I would argue from the scriptures, which is point one, fear. Fear is the root of our problems in the spiritual life. If you don't believe me, just go to the beginning. What was the sin that Adam and Eve did? Was it the fact that they ate a fruit? Was it the fact that they chose, they're like, yes, I think we can do this better I'm going to do this? Or was it something implanted in them to make them disbelieve that God actually had their best interest at heart? That God actually loved them. And so much so, he knew what was best for them. He knew what wisdom was. And he says, I just want you to simply trust me. And it was then put in them. Is God trustworthy? Is he lovely? Does he love you? Are you significant? It rules over us. I think of Genesis 4 where Cain is, he's, he's wondering, why, God, do you not love me more than my brother? What about me do you not love? And God comes to him, he says, there is this desire in you and it's, it's, its hope is to rule over you. You must rule over it. 
And what does he do? He reacts to fear. God doesn't love me. And out of that, it's an anger for a killing of his brother. At the very heart of all of us, we want to feel lovely. We want to feel significant. We want to feel safe. And we are ruled and dominated by that, that maybe we're not. So therefore, I must do whatever it takes to get that. Sound familiar? In honor of Tim Keller, who I think was one of the most profound teachers of our day. He died two days ago. I'll be throwing a few of his quotes just in honor of him throughout this. But this is what he said about the source of evil. We want to feel beautiful. We want to feel loved. We want to feel significant. And that is why we are working so hard. That is the source of evil. Fear then is the root of almost all our problems. Why? Because the end goal of humanity is to enjoy God, to become like him, as Jesus said, a person of love. Through union with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, we allow ourselves to be washed clean and the deepest parts of us healed and pervaded by his Love And through a deep confidence, we're marked by love and we pour that out to others. The telos of humanity is to become a person of love and to be in union with God. 1 John 4, 16, and we know and rely on the love of God that he has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. This is how Love has been made complete among us that we will have confidence in the day of judgment. In this world, we're like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. When we need our lives to go a certain way, when it is out of control, when we think we're the captain and then something happens that disrupts that, We don't react as people of love. We do whatever is necessary to self-preserve. You feel that? Take the Philippian jailer. His life as he knew it was over. The shame of a failed job, the oppression from Caesar's economy and government would have resulted in the death of him. He believed based on his worldview, the only option was suicide because everything in his life, as he knew, was over. But Paul and Silas had a whole other belief, a faith in a whole other kingdom and a whole other king and the one whose image the jailer bore himself. Paul and Silas had a faith beyond the fear So if fear at some level is the root of what is wrong with us, then faith is the ultimate solution. Somewhere in the pandemic, someone coined the phrase faith over fear. Do we remember that? Was that triggering for some of you? What you feeling right now? I mean, it is what it is. It became a rally cry for anti-government overreach, anti-vax, anti-lockdown, just furthering the division of the culture wars. You may hate it. You may have it as a bumper sticker. I, I don't know. I just say that to clear the air, wherever you are, on the left or right, let me remind you that this was biblical language, 
before it was hijacked and perverted for a political agenda. And like most things in scripture, it was taken out of context, emotionally charged and loaded. Some of you may have even checked out when I read 1 John because that, that uh, verse there was used a lot. Oh, great, another guy just telling me to have more faith and belittle my fear. <laughs> just take a shot of faith and you will be cured. Just hang with me. Benedict Groeschel, he says, the entirety of the spiritual journey is this, a decrease in fear and an increase in peace. Or as John would say, he must become greater in me, I must become less. This is not a self-depreciating rally cry. This is a call to human flourishing as defined by Jesus. Jesus would explain in the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember this, how all of us are consumed by anxiety and fear? What to wear in our daily lives? What to eat? Will I be okay? Will I have enough? And that's real. Like, that's, that's a fire of anxiety that hits our brains. And when we hear these things from Jesus, don't be anxious, we almost see that as unloving. Cool, great, got it. Don't be anxious. That's a command, so just don't do it, right? What is he getting at? He's saying your life is pervaded by fear. It has manifested itself in a way that you are ruled by, and now you will do whatever it takes to self-preserve and define what you believe is best for you. This might get a little bloody. And the decisions with what you make with your time, how you spend it, I believe what's best for me. I need five hours on my phone and Netflix. With your sexuality, my body is mine. I know what's best for it and who is best for it. With your money, I need to spend and shop and get the shopper's high to feel alive, to feel in control, or the opposite. I need to save incessantly. I need to save everything in case it hits the fan. How are we doing? <laughs> it's bloody, I get it, but I want to build the case for you that fear is the root of what's wrong with us. It is behind the decisions we make to sin. And to understand belief or faith, we have to understand what is at the core of our disbelief. If faith is the solution to fear, or as you've maybe heard it before, have faith in Jesus for salvation, what does that mean? What is faith? Well, faith has a range of meaning. In Greek, it's pistis. Means faith, it also means belief, trust, confidence, reliance, allegiance. I like how it's described this way faith is simply this confidence that is grounded in reality. This might be a challenge to some of you, but faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is not believing in something for which there is no evidence. It is believing in something for which there is evidence and living as if it was true. Love how in True Blood says, faith is not belief without proof. It's just, it is trust without reservation. Faith is not a feeling, even though, yes, there is emotion attached to it, of course. It is not just a mental assent, which I think is a fatal flaw that I have to just affirm enough doctrine 
It certainly is related to what we think about God. We need to think correct things about him to combat the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil, but faith is an action. You put faith in God. And so it is the center of our discipleship to Jesus. And it is not a religious thing. It is a human thing. We all live by faith. Whether you reject that there is a God or not, we all live by faith to make sense and move in ordinary life. One of my favorite things now, I think, to see, this has replaced, I think, funny cat videos for people, is images and videos of people on roller coasters. Have y'all seen some of these? There's one up here, I think. Yeah. Look at the progression of the middle kid. Just like pure enjoyment to terror, and now it's just like flatlined, like he's out for the count. I must tell you, that's a progression of our spiritual journey as well. This is my, uh, one of my favorites, this next one. Um, look, this one is just not having it. Unfazed. <laughs> Looks like a lot of the pictures like way back in the day where like your grandma didn't smile, you know? I would say maybe she's just at complete peace. <laughs> This is my, uh, I think this one's my favorite though. Um, this kid <laughs> just pretzeled over the safety bar. How many of you, if you uh, like roller coasters, if you have faith in them, how many of you are a hands up kind of people? Yeah? How many of you are like that kid? <laughs> <laughs> Regardless of where you are, if it's a weak faith or not, you believe enough to get on the roller coaster. You believe enough that you are not, maybe he doesn't, but you do believe enough that you're not going to fly off into space. That the roller coaster itself is safe enough that as much as you hold on to that bar, we're all in this together. If this thing's going down, we're all going down. Even for the meaning of life, the question is not do you have faith, it is who or what do you put your faith in? Either I choose to put trust and live in this interpretation of reality or this interpretation of reality. James uh, K. Smith, he said, the question isn't whether you're going to believe, but who? It's not merely about what to believe, but who to entrust yourself to. Do you really want to trust yourself? Do we really think humanity is our best bet? Do we really think we are the answers to our problems, we who have generated all of them? Putting faith in Jesus or other New Testament language, repent and believe, is simply rethinking everything you thought you knew to be true about the world how it works, your role in it, and simply trusting that the way to live life to the fullest is found in the way of Jesus alone and following him. Jesus would say, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life. So faith then is not just feeling or an agreement of truth, it's not less than that, but to experience life eternal or to the fullest, or as the biblical authors would say, zoe. 
It is trusting the truth about who Jesus is. He's done everything necessary to fix what we broke with God by his life and then practicing and following in the way of him. Come follow me to recover your life. Keller once said when he was talking about the gospel, he says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. Through apprenticing under Jesus, you become a person of faith, a person of trust, of confidence in Jesus. And it's something to be developed like any muscle through resistance training, or as the biblical authors would say, suffering. James 2, faith made complete in works, not earning, but moving out of love. You see the difference there? Philippians 2, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. The practices are how we work out our faith. We don't do them to earn our faith, but out of love that we have been set free. We now follow him. Those who have been working out their faith for decades now, there's not many of you in here. Some of you are only two decades old. But there are a few of you who have been working out your faith now for decades. We're a young church, we'll get there. But the few of you that are just titans of the faith, you are like immovable objects. You're unfazed by news on TV. You're unfazed by which government is in office, what decisions are made both sides, whether you disagree with it, you're at peace in your mind and body. You're present at each moment in person. You're not naive. You know the world is broken, but you really do trust when Jesus says, I am coming back to make all of this new. And even though things are complete chaos, you know things will work out. I cannot wait to be like you. And then process, you exude what uh, early Christians would call apatheia. This peace, this serenity, detachment. We'll explore that here in a little bit. You look a little bit, a lot like Jesus. How do we get there? <laughs> How is it that people get to that place in their spiritual formation? Is, is it just age? I don't think so. I know a lot of people that have claimed to follow Jesus for a while and they're even more scared. I think it's what the authors would say through suffering. And so there's a tool here that I wanna share with you that I'll spend probably the majority of my time going through. This is not like verse and chapter by any means. It's simply a tool. There's something out there called spiritual cartography, which is similar to what psychologists call stage theory or developmental psychology, is simply an attempt to map over a lifetime discipleship to Jesus. And I found it incredibly helpful because it goes from the stages of no belief at all to this like immovable object that you are. These aren't progressions in the sense of climbing a ladder. I don't want you to hear that. This is more linear. 
but you can implant this on about any biography in scripture. Job, if we had time, David, Moses, Peter, it's simply a way for us to make sense of 2 Corinthians 3. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. What does that mean? And this is from the Lord. So there's a progression here in our spiritual journey. The tool here is three levels. You can say three stages of faith as well. Number one is this, the faith of religion. And this is where we all start. It's not a bad place at all to start. Religion gets a bad rap. You've heard it been said before, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Christianity's not a religion, bro, it's a relationship. It sounds really good, but I do think it is an overreaction to a kind of religion that is largely rules-based and little to do with relationship. Because this is simply what religion is, a set of beliefs to explain what life is about, who we are, and how we should live. That's religion. So based on that, whether you're Christian, Buddhist, atheist, all things pride, a golfer, you're religious. And some of you golfers are the most religious people I've ever met in my life. So proud of you. I hate your religion, but I mean, you are faithful to it. Faithful. Whatever you are, you are religious. And relating to Jesus at this level sounds a little like this, and maybe this will make sense. If I blank, then God will blank. If I put faith in Jesus, I will go to the good place. If I tithe, I'll be blessed financially. If I abstain from sex before marriage, I'm gonna have an awesome spouse and a great sex life a transactional approach to faith, formulaic. If I do enough for God, he will be pleased with me. If I don't, he will be mad at me. And I think Christians and non-Christians fall into this trap. At some point, though, this transaction approach will let you down. Whether you're a Christian, it is maturing beyond this, believing that God does actually have his best interest for you. If you are not a Christian, it's do you really wanna trust yourself? Because not if, but when crisis comes and God does not rescue you from it, what will you do? I think there's three responses. You either step back, you step forward, or you step, or I'm sorry, you step back, aside, or up. Stepping back looks a lot like our current cultural phenomena. And this is a very complex um, idea. I get it with deconstruction. There's a lot going on there. Some of it is, is I would say, probably pretty good, a reaction to abusive leadership, reaction to the church's stance and hatred towards some people groups. But I do think largely it is a reaction to people who do things in the name of Jesus rather than Jesus himself. Gandhi said, I love your Jesus, but I hate your Christians. I hear a lot in the hurt with this, a lack of maturing beyond this level. God, I did this, but you didn't come through. So therefore, I'm out. Or where were you? 
Why did you not do this? Why do you allow this? You hear that language? It's the pulse of our culture. Why didn't you do blank? And Jesus warned against this in Mark 4. They hear the word and they receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble comes, and it will, because of the word, they will quickly fall away. Option two is that you just live a very incoherent life. We've compartmentalized. This is where I would probably argue the cultural Christianity phenomenon. Jesus on Sunday in life group, but the rest of the week is mine. God is over here on Sunday, but then my time is for this stuff. I see it also in how you can affirm that Jesus is the way, but then you hold to beliefs that completely oppose his way. Your life and opposite, or your faith and life are in opposition to each other. But there is a third option, there is a maturity beyond this, and this is what I would argue comes in salvific faith. Those that have seen that God is our only hope, it's a faith of desperation. It's what's called for in crisis. This is where God has become real. This is where God is your only hope for this life and the life to come, when the phone call comes and the worst news possible happens, when the cancer diagnosis hits, when the dream is broken, when the relationship didn't work out, it's the dark night of the soul, is what the ancients would call it. It's a faith on display I see in the Philippian jailer. Verse 29, the jailer called for the lights. He rushed in, he fell trembling for, before Paul and Silas. He brought them out, and he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I think in this story, we see a progression from one to two for him. The religion of Roman antiquity, where Philippi was in, was very superstitious, not just a little stitious. It was very superstitious. Caesar was seen as a god. Everything was predicated on his rule and reign. We saw even earlier in chapter 16 how the salvation of an enslaved girl started upsetting the whole caste system of Philippi. The gospel started changing stuff. I love this. The presence of an earthquake would have been seen as an act of God. So to this jailer, this God was way more powerful than Caesar. And he was toast. His religion had failed him. He failed at his job. His only reaction was ending his life. But then Paul speaks the hope of the gospel over him. And you see the desperation in the jailer's voice. What must I do to be saved? And whatever he means by this, he at least affirms this. Paul and Silas's God was the real deal, and he knew it. So believing or trusting or putting faith in Jesus is saying that he has a whole new vision for my life. I do not have to be debilitated by shame or fear. I can trust in the one who knows my heart. 
And I love this. With weak and honest faith, the jailer does, and it spills out to his whole family. Paul is calling on the jailer to believe in the power of God, the possibility of life in the kingdom of God. And listen, this, this might be a little uncomfortable with you, so just bear with me. But in this story and all over the scriptures, we do see correlation between faith and the experience of the release of the power of God. And I don't have this figured out. It is not a magic trick. And I know it has been wildly abused in some Christian traditions. It is not a formula, but there is one nonetheless. John Wimber, he said, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. We step out in faith to see God's power on display. Peter out of the boat. Mark 2, Jesus seeing their faith, he heals the paralytic. The Israelites walking through the Red Sea. The Philippian jailer coming to Paul and asking him, what must I do? However you want to square it theologically is fine, but the facts are facts. He stepped out in faith and we see the power of God change not only him, but his entire family. The jailer's risking everything. Rejection of Caesar as God, becoming one of the Christian like freaks in the city. His livelihood, do you think he was able to go back and be a jailer? Everything. But he saw the faith of Paul and Silas and the power of God and he took risk. And I love this. That risk is now documented forever in the scriptures. This God is the real deal and I wanna follow him because I know he can do the impossible. That's faith of desperation. But I do think there's one more stop in the journey. And it takes a lifetime, what the biblical authors would call sanctification. It's a faith in God, even if he doesn't come through. It's a faith in God simply because you want him, not his benefits, him. It's a faith that Jesus exuded, the perfecter of our faith. Father, if at all possible, take this cup from me. You hear the agony? Bleeding, begging God, and the heavens were silent. Not my will then, but yours be done. A few hours later, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sky was dark. I think it is here at this level that a lot of us maybe think we are, but are slow to admit and just being honest that at times our faith still feels very transactional. Or when crisis comes, we don't know if we really believe in God because we want him to fix something or just simply because we believe in God. Not my will, but your will are words on our mouth, but they're not meditations of our hearts. And I'm not saying this in a shaming way, I'm just being honest. You do not, for the first time, say with your heart and mouth, I want to follow Jesus and just have this figured out. It's a process. From glory to glory, 
as 1 Corinthians says. This is the good work the Spirit is doing in you that he promises to bring to completion, Philippians 1.6. A faith of full surrender, it simply is trust in God because you love him, and especially when he doesn't answer prayer. It's cutting. It's Job at the end of his life. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. My ears had heard of you, but my eyes have now seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent. This is Paul, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And let me clarify, faith of surrender does not mean that you just don't have desire. That's not what that means. All of us do. I think all of us want to minimize pain and maximize pleasure in our life, right? Because <laughs> you're human. But faith of surrender means you are not emotionally attached to those desires. And you may like or hate that word attachment, but I do see it as the root of even fear itself. It is what is holding us in prison and from the freedom of faith. Our anxieties reveal our attachments. It just is what it is, what we toss and turn around or about, what we ruminate on, what we're scared to death about what we can't stop thinking about, what we micromanage, what we do, everything in our power to control. There's something deep in us, and it reveals whatever we think we need to be okay. Anthony DeMillo said it this way, if you look carefully, you will see that there is one thing that causes unhappiness. The name of that thing is attachment. What is an attachment? It's an emotional state of clinging caused by the belief that without some particular thing or some person, you cannot be happy. Attachments are not desires. They're emotional clinging to that and a genuine belief that without that thing, we will not be okay. It's Adam and Eve's belief that God really did not know what was best for them, that he had his best interests at their heart, that he knew them and he loved them, that he was holding out on them as the serpent was whispering, that they were significant or even lovable. Attachments or other biblical language, idols, they promise us peace and flourishing, but they only give us misery and let us down. At some point, our attachments will be stripped away, be it crisis, global pandemic, different party in office, a relationship ended, a job terminated, a cancer diagnosis, or just simply the reality that we will not live forever. And the paradox of Jesus' teaching is as long as you need your life to go a certain way to be happy and at peace, you will never be happy and at peace. So discipleship to Jesus then is this, a slow burning off of our attachments to all that is not God. Contrary to anxiety over attachment is what I said earlier. It's this kind of what a lot of early Christians would believe, this final state of spiritual formation, what the ancients called apatheia, which is Greek for peace, serenity, detachment. I was reading when um, Keller passed away, there were, it was a tweet by his son that went out. 
And I just was so struck by this. It says, Dad waited until he was alone with Mom. She kissed him on the forehead, and he breathed his last breath. We take comfort in some of his last words. There is no downside for me leaving. Not in the slightest. Keller would say, as he's wrestling with death, I think the way I handle death is by fighting sin and getting deeper in communion with God. He'd say this a lot about John Owen. We are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in a holy amazement as his unspeakable love. There is just something unshakable in you when you exude a faith of surrender, apatheia full on display. Fear may still be there, but it is a provocative stance. Even in the face of death, you have nothing over me. My everything is secure in the hands of the one who defeated even death. Peace, I leave with you, Jesus says. One final translation for apatheia is what's called a detachment. And this is not like in Buddha, or Buddhism, Buddhism, I don't know what I was saying there, Buddhism, it's not a negation of desire. It's an emotional letting go of. It's a reordering of desire. The fall destroyed our desires, put them all out of whack. But discipleship to Jesus is now this reordering of desire, or as he would say, seeking first the kingdom. Dr. Robert Mahalani said a deep, about apatheia, a deep inner posture, this is what it is, of joyful release of our life and being to God in absolute trust without demands, without conditions, without reservation. It's not a passive resignation or just whatever comes. It is rather a consistent posture of actively turning our whole being to God so that his presence, his purpose, and his power can be released through our lives into all situations. This is Paul and Silas. One of the things that's so striking about this story is the despite the abuse they suffered from the jailer, mind you, the stocks that they were in, John Polhill says that they would have been fastened to the wall and it would have just allowed for this severe stretching of their torso, causing excruciating pain. But you know what's crazy about this? Do you know how we know that they were at peace? They were singing. Acts 12, Peter's account, it says he was asleep. Both of those expressions of a deep faith in Jesus, apatheia. This is going to work out. Even if it doesn't, the way we think, it still will, and he is still good. Paul and Silas, completely at ease with their situation, trusting God the whole way. I'm sure they didn't love being stretched apart. But they believed in God. In this posture of full surrender, we see the power of God released through an earthquake and then an entire family coming to faith. And what's also crazy about this is, did you see them run away just quickly when the chains were broken? No, it said they stayed back. 
their attachment to safety and freedom. It's right there. They could have taken it. But this human life was more important to them. We have to give this guy hope because he doesn't have any. Faith of surrender. St. Ignatius, he'd say, our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want and I choose what better leads to God's deepening his life in me. As John Piper would say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This is not trusting God for, this is not just trusting God for the impossible. It's good, you should do that. It's not a flippant, well, God has a plan. Yes, he does, but what if his plan is not rescuing you from crisis? What if it is deepening his love for him in you? Is that enough? And I think it's good to just honestly ask that. Do I believe, Father, that you are enough regardless of what happens to me in this life? As Piper again would say, are you my greatest treasure and greatest delight? So I'll just close simply with this. It, it, it's a it's two-way street here. For some reason, this is how partnership works. This is how God has just purposed for it to work. It is very much a us and him thing when it comes to our spiritual formation. There's an active pursuit. We talk about this a lot. I'll say this until the day I die. <laughs> there are things we can do in our spiritual formation. Turning off the nasty and listening to things that are good, that are holy, that change our minds about things about who God is. Correct teaching, scripture. Through practice, how we apprentice after Jesus. Fasting is not that fun. I'm just gonna be honest. But I'll tell you this, I'm starving something in me that wants to rule over me because I desire the presence of God in my life. It's community for all my introverts out there, myself included. When 6.30 comes and group starts at seven, oof, I got a critical moment to make here. It's gonna take 15 minutes. Do I really wanna to go tonight? It's a spurring one another on towards godliness and good deeds. And then it is the promise of the Spirit of God that he will complete what he has started in you. So wherever you are on this spectrum, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I ask you again, do you really wanna trust yourself? Do you really believe that humanity is your best bet? Because the one who created it all knows exactly how this is gonna go down. And he knows exactly what you need for happiness. It's him. Because he made you and he made your heart. I pray for you that you see that God truly is your only hope. And for a lot of us that are in between now that have followed Jesus, there is a promise one day that in our minds and in our bodies, we will be at full peace, come hell or high water. 
He is good. Not if, but when crisis comes. I got hit in the face with this pretty recently. And I had to ask myself, God, do I simply want you because of what you're doing in my life or do I want you because I want you? I'm asking that. It's gonna happen to you. It's gonna happen to us. We have to take a look. What are we built on, fear or faith? And we all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, and this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Amen.